Uh, this morning from Psalm 144, we're going to turn our attention to Christmas. It may be a little late for your liking, and for that, I suppose I could apologize. We're going to spend two weeks in this psalm and unearth a bit of our Advent. We are not awaiting the first coming of Jesus, the first coming of the Savior, yet we await the second coming. And I think the Psalms help us to get a good picture of that in their expectation of a powerful coming king, especially where David talks about the powerful and coming king. And so with Advent, we increase our expectation of his return. By looking at his first coming, we anticipate the second Now, I'm sure you've heard your children or some children speak about how they wish every day was Christmas. You heard that before? I wish every day was Christmas. And to that, we have to respond, well, if every day was Christmas in terms of the the social nature of it and the excitement of it, if every day was Christmas, then Christmas would no longer be special, would it? The irony of it is, For being honest about it, for the one who knows the gospel, every day is Christmas. Every day is Christmas. And for the one who knows the gospel, every day is Easter. We celebrate the truth of the gospel day after day after day as believers in the Lord Jesus because we know he has come to save and we know he rose again in victory and all that is ours. Every day single day. So for the true believer, it's not as if the gospel, and get me, the true believer, because, side note, the gospel for some folks gets old real quick. The gospel is something I've heard that I know that, and we live in a society that is somewhat familiar with the gospel, even though they probably going to tell you what it is exactly. They're familiar with Jesus and what he came to do, but it's no longer impressive to them. It's no longer important to them. It no longer affects the way that they live. But for the true believer, and this is where I was going with this, the true believer maintains and, in fact, increases in their excitement for the Lord Jesus as their joy grows as their love for him grows, as their anticipation grows. I believe King David lived in this kind of anticipation. You know, read through a lot of the Psalms, and it is is really all over the place. Uh, When David talks, it's almost like one extreme to the other, and and we would think, like, man, this is, a, this is a king, and he's got a lot going for him. Why does he always seem to be down in the dumps? And how come he can come out of this so quickly? I believe he lived in the anticipation of the coming Christ as well as anybody. I think we see that pictured clearly in Psalm 144. Psalm 144 is a psalm that was likely written in the midst of a difficult situation, uh, possibly coming out of a difficult situation. Uh, Some commentators think that David was either uh, writing this psalm after his occasion with 
Goliath. Some think he was writing it after escaping the hand of Saul. Some think it was after uh, Absalom died. Uh, and all that spans well over 25 years. So we don't know the specific occasion of this psalm, but what we know is that David has the complete salvation in view in this psalm. I want to read it for you, beginning verse 1, Psalm 144. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you who gives victory to kings who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown and our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Let's pray once more. Father, we plead again for your presence, your spirit's help in understanding your word. Let us see Jesus and be satisfied in him. We pray in his name. Amen. So this week and next week are part one and two of complete salvation. Complete salvation. Today we're going to cover verses one through eight. Verses one through eight, and then we'll finish the psalm uh, next week. Now, as you probably picked up in this psalm, there are a lot of things that relate to salvation that the psalmist, David here, is grouping together. You see this in the prophets when they speak about the coming Christ. They often speak about his uh, being with us and at the same time ruling. And so they have in view both the first and the second coming in their expectation of the Lord Jesus. But we live in a, in a unique time, I suppose. You've heard me use the, the phrase, the already and the not yet of where we live, the tension of where we live between the first coming and the second coming. So while we look at some of these psalms and some prophecies, we see the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation. 
we are still yet looking for his return and the consummation of his kingdom. So we look back on Christmas fondly, thankfully, worshipfully, yet we're looking forward to the final revelation of the Son. And I want to remind you, as David covers here, salvation is so much bigger than we typically want to make it. It does include your personal rescue, your personal faith, and your relationship with the Lord Jesus, but it expands far beyond that to the people of God. It expands, really, according to Colossians 1, to the whole of the created order. All things are being renewed in the Son, and I think we get a a good picture of that here in Psalm 144. The theme... This morning, a life experiencing God's power and grace waits confidently for complete salvation. A life experiencing God's power and grace waits confidently for complete salvation. You know, every week I put my notes in these slides, and every week I look up there with this this fear that I'm going to have a word misspelled. Is that weird? Is that weird? I try to double check, but I haven't found one yet. It's coming one day, and when it comes, we'll all laugh at it together, okay? A life experiencing God's power and grace waits confidently for complete salvation. This week, I want to show you the scene of salvation from verses 1 through 8. Next week, I want to show you the scope of salvation, and that gets into more of our title, Complete Salvation. So the scene of salvation, verses 1 through 8. I want to show you David has salvation in his mind pictured pretty well. I know you often, maybe in your individual circumstances, can think of ways that you would have this play out. And God, if, if you want to save me from this situation or resolve my issues here, then this is a good way for you to do it. So David here, likewise, has a good idea and is praying for this good idea of salvation in his Situation, But what I want you to see from this scene of salvation is three requirements. Requirements. First off, from the first couple of verses, the first requirement is our confidence in God. This is required. You notice David is still awaiting salvation in this psalm. He's still awaiting salvation. There are many psalms that he writes in response to God's salvation. In this case, he's looking toward a day when these things will be resolved. So we see his confidence in God is the beginning point for him. Three things I want you to notice here. He is confident through faith. Verses 1 and 2. Notice the personal pronouns. In fact, Luther is one of the ones who said uh, true religion or meaningful religion is found in the personal pronouns. It's not just that God is God and that is wonderful and we worship for him, him for that, that he is God. But you know what? He's not just the God who is off somewhere, transcended. He is my God. So when David writes here, my Rock. He trains my fingers. He's my steadfast love. He's my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge. 
There's several pictures here that show the personal nature of his faith in God. He is confident in God because of what he has seen God do in his life. If you look at the very end of the passage, verse 15, what you get really is an invitation into this. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. So the question really is that you ought to be asking all the way through this text. The question really is, like David, is he my God? I can think of the coming of Jesus and the people of faith that surround that occasion. I think the one who comes to mind in the greatest manner is the Virgin Mary. I recall preaching a sermon from her song, the Magnificat, a couple of years ago and loved that sermon, loved that, learned to love that passage at that point. Listen to the way that Mary speaks of her God. Mary said, Luke 146. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts in their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate and has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Don't you get the sense that Mary is speaking of a God that she knows intimately, personally? My God, my rock, my fortress. See, she had the same confidence that David had here in this psalm. And I would, I would guess, I think it's pretty safe to guess that Mary was very familiar with this psalm right here. They share the confidence of rejoicing in salvation, even though it had yet to come. It's as sure as done with God. Because he is faithful. He does what he says he will do. He fulfills his promises. And so Mary, you can imagine all the overwhelming uncertainty that would come into her mind and her heart in those moments, she says, I know God has brought salvation. And it wasn't, well, what if this child doesn't develop correctly? What if this child doesn't survive? What if I can't provide for this child? She says, none of this. She knows that God will fulfill his purposes. So together... They rejoice in salvation, though it had yet to come. You notice where David begins with faith, Mary likewise begins with faith. 
I would tell you, you can't start to ask God for salvation from a place of unbelief. Augustine said, we must begin with faith. And we must continue in faith, seeking understanding. So we don't need more proof. David, David shows us right here. We don't need more proof of what God is and what God will do and how he operates and how he's faithful. In all these little images here in verses 1 and 2, he shows us that God can be trusted. But I would tell you today that faith must be the starting point if you wish to experience salvation in any form with God. So he's confident through faith. Secondly, he's confident to fight. You hear the words here, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. David obviously speaking in terms of being a military leader. He's experienced much military success, and he's thanking God for the way that he prepared him for that. One writer says here, to David it was clear that God alone had of the shepherd boy made a victorious king. David knew where he came from, and he would not be where he was had it not been for God's faithfulness. He recognizes God's faithfulness. You know, if you're like me, uh, uh, I'm a big fan of sports. I watch all kinds of sports. This week, in fact, I was watching cricket. I don't even know what goes on in cricket, but I uh, don't know the rules, don't know why they're doing what they do, but I find it totally intriguing. I'm looking for somebody who can tell me the rules. If you know the rules, please tell me. I love to watch sports, and oftentimes after a sporting event, you'll see somebody interviewed, player of the game, MVP, whatever it is, and they will often give credit to God. First of all, I just want to thank God, you know, for, for this win today or whatever it is. And there's something about that. I hope it, if you're like me, there's something that is refreshing about that. In one particular occasion, I remember, uh, I think it's Ray Lewis of the, of the NFL uh, Ravens several years ago. After they won the Super Bowl, he kept repeating one Bible verse over and over again. You may know it. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. He kept saying that. He was high on the victory. And I understand the excitement, even taking the verse out of context a little bit. Thank God for the football win or whatever. You see, these guys, they recognize, even when they won the biggest game in the world, he recognizes that God was the one who helped him. This is what David is doing right here. Every victory I ever had, every fight I ever won, every battle I endured was because of God. He was my shield. He's the one who prevented them from overtaking me. He was the one who guided my sword in those battles. You see him recognizing this, and he is confident to fight. But what about you? What about you? Are you confident in this way in your Christian life? You think, well, I'm not David. I'm not in the battles. I'm not, I'm not like him. But do you recognize that when your sin is defeated in the most practical way, that that is from God? 
It wasn't just your willpower or whatever you think it might be. It was God's faithfulness. Have you participated in the making of a disciple? Was that because you're just so good at disciple making? No. It was God who did this. It was God who guided your words. It was the Spirit who was showing you what to say, what to do, how to teach, sustaining you in those moments. Have you had situations that were resolved in your life? This is God helping you in the fight. Has your life been preserved? This was God helping you in the fight. But I don't see a lot of Christians who carry themselves in the faith with this kind of confidence for the fight. I'll admit, I am one of the first ones that will feel defeated. I'm one of the first ones that will have the notion of giving up amid the fight. But David here was confident in the fight because he knew who trained him. He knew who guided his sword. He knew who was protecting him all along the way. All of these things in David's life and all of these things in your life, I hope you see, it points to a bigger salvation. So he's confident through faith. My rock. He's confident to fight. God trained me. And then he is confident in his calling. Confident in calling. You notice at the end of verse 2, who subdues people under me. And I was studying this, I was first thinking victory. He's just talked about fighting. It makes sense for it to be victory, right? But I looked deeper into this, and uh, the word subdue is actually like a willing submission. So it may have to do with his enemies that just said, hey, I'm not going to try to overtake you. I'm just going to willingly submit. But I would tell you that in any application of this, do you see that your station in life comes with responsibilities? Your work, your family, that comes with responsibilities. God has placed the people under you for you to shepherd well, for you to lead well. I don't care who you are. God has given you some measure of responsibility in this way. People who willingly follow you. Sometimes I wonder, as a pastor, I know all the stuff that, you know, sort of goes on in my head and my heart. And then I look out at you sometimes and I'm just like, man, I can't understand. I don't know why any of these folks would follow me anywhere. We can look at David. We see this nobody turned into a trusted leader. God does that for those who understand his calling on their life. So, Mom, you have a wonderful calling. God has given you responsibility of children. Laborer, worker, are you responsible for anybody else? That's God who has put them there for your care, for your shepherding, so that you may lead them. 
David understood all this was given to him by God. He understood his assignment. And so we must respond in the same way with confidence in God's assignment for us. He will take us over all the obstacles and oppositions as he did for David here. So the first requirement that I think we see from Psalm 144 is our confidence in God. And then secondly, our confession of frailty. Our confession of frailty. I'm reminded of my frailty every time I get thirsty. Our confession of frailty, verses 3 and 4. I hope these verses sound familiar to you. O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. So what is man first? What is man? He's asking this question to reveal the frailty, reveal the insufficiency of man in this psalm. Plummer writes here, neither intrinsic worth nor permanence of existence on earth can be the cause of God's tenderness to man, but only divine kindness. You see, David writes here, man's like a breath, his day is like a passing shadow, but God thinks of him. So David here shares his surprise with us and Hopefully we share that surprise with him. Surprise that God would be a stronghold for little old man. That God would intervene on behalf of sinful man. That God would be blessing man. G. Campbell Morgan notes about this psalm and the ones prior to it. That there are five Psalms, in the mid, starting in the mid-130s, that speak of the sufficiency of God. And then there are four Psalms that follow the sufficiency of God with the helplessness of man. He says about this, the divine sufficiency is seen encompassing the human helplessness until it is so lost sight of as hardly to be discoverable. We recently built our, our home, and I got to see all the process of, you know, things that were happening day by day, and, you know, I put uh, drywall in, sheetrock in, and then we still have work to do, right? So people would come in with their tools, they would come in with their supplies, and they would bang stuff against the brand new sheetrock, you know, put dents in it and scratches all over it, and the most amazing thing, if you get some good sheetrock guys, they can come in at the end and they can patch all that stuff. So while we had the damage that happens to the walls and the flaws that would be seen very clearly, once the repairs were made, you could hardly notice anything about that wall that could have been wrong. You see, David here is highlighting the flaws of man, highlighting the insufficiency of man so that 
God's work would be seen in its glory as coming in and resolving those things, covering up those things. But I would argue it's even more than a cover-up. Because if you, could, if you could strip down my wall a little bit, you'll still see those imperfections. You'll still see those flaws in God's work. Though we see our flaws and we know about our flaws now, in the future, those flaws will only be a memory. And really, we could say it's not just flaws. We are wholly corrupted in our sin. And so when the final work of God's salvation is complete and consummated in Jesus Christ, we'll be able to think back on the days and thank God for the salvation that he brought and saving us from that terrible condition. It is truly more than just a cover-up job. It is full redemption. So David here is saying, man is not worthy of your thought, God, but, but you have thought of him. Last week we talked about how David was getting high on himself and God humbled him. And we don't want to get caught up in our pride in that way, thinking that we can handle our own issues without God's help, that we won't be moved. But on the flip side, and we are so easily taken off to the left or to the right, likewise, we don't want to get stuck in our own helplessness. We read passages like this. We read passages about how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we stand condemned because of our sin. And we fight sin. And when we don't overcome it, like Romans 7, we don't overcome it. We, we do the things we don't want to do and don't do the things that we want to do. We fight this fight of sin. And then we realize our condition. And then the tendency is to get stuck there. Well, I'm just... I'm no good. I can't do anything right. I could never be honorable to God. God could never use me. And in that, folks, you are missing the truth of the gospel. You're getting stuck right where Paul did not get stuck in Romans 7. He says, wretched man that I am. Sometime this past week, I bet you woke up or you went to bed and you were thinking, I am such a wretched human being. And then that was it. And you miss the truth of God's gospel. Don't get stuck in that. Yes, you need to acknowledge the wretch that you are, wretched man that I am. But you need to follow that with the right question. And Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What is man that you are mindful of him? But you are mindful of him. These words ought to to be familiar to you if you know Psalm 8, if you know Hebrews chapter 2. So we may say, what is man? And from Psalm 8, what is the son of man? 
So while David in Psalm 144 is speaking about man's condition and how God is utterly gracious to think of him, in Psalm 8, he is setting up Jesus, yes, Jesus, as the supreme man, as the ideal man. Listen to what it says in Psalm 8, beginning of verse 5. Or excuse me, four. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Verse five. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. See, Psalm 144 was man's terrible condition. Why would God think of him? And then Psalm 8 is exactly how God thought of him. How God thought of you. How God thought of me. He thought of us in so much as he sent the son Jesus, the eternal son, to take on human flesh, to be what we could not be. We could not subdue the earth. We could not have dominion because of our sin. And so Jesus is this man to come into the world, the only sufficient, ideal man, the only, the only one that a new humanity could be patterned after. We read from the scriptures how in Adam all die, well in Christ all will be made alive. You may say, well, Matt, how do you know Psalm 8 is talking about Jesus? How do you know? How do you know this? Because as you heard from Hebrews chapter 2 in our reading earlier, the writer of Hebrews says Psalm 8 is in fact about Jesus. He says in Hebrews 2, 9, but we see him, Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus is the one who came, the ideal man. Not only did he model it for us, but he actually died for us. And I hope you can see Christmas. I hope you can see why the Lord Jesus had to come as a frail man, afflicted like we are, even more, tempted at every point like we are. And so isn't it appropriate Isn't it appropriate that David in Psalm 144 would say, bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. And there is no doubt that he did.
Hebrews 2.17. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Do you see this? The God who is high and lifted up, the God whose train filled the temple with glory. This God has taken the form of a man. He's become a servant and was obedient to the point of death on a cross. This is why Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, could proclaim on the news of the birth of his son and the news of the coming Messiah, this is why he could proclaim in his psalm, God has visited us and redeemed his people. Luke 1. Our confidence in God is a requirement. Our confession of frailty, third requirement. Our cry for mighty deliverance, and this is very brief, verses 5 through 8. He says, touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. That's a terrifying scene, isn't it? It's patterned after Sinai. On, on that occasion, even Moses trembled at the fear of the Lord. And so David has in mind this kind of rescue. Plummer writes here, when God has purposed to accomplish or chooses to undertake a cause, nothing can resist him. Before the all-powerful God, mountains themselves melt like wax. And as David anticipated that day, we too anticipate that day. That day is coming where the mountains will be melting before the fiery wrath of God. We anticipate that day when we finally see all things, when we see all things in subjection to him, the son, Jesus. When we finally see all things put under his feet, his enemies as his footstool, that's the scene of salvation that David confidently awaits and we still confidently Await, but until that scene comes to fruition, I want to turn to another scene of salvation. The same powerful yet humble king, unrecognized by the world, God in human flesh, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, born in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The good news, folks, is that salvation is here. Salvation is in the sun. And while the mountains await to be 
melted away by him, the work that he does right now melts the hard hearts of human beings in the throes of sin. He is setting up his kingdom heart by heart, church by church, until he comes again with power and great might completing the work of salvation that he would ultimately accomplish at the cross. So I would ask you again, as we questioned at the beginning, verse 15, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Is he your God? Has he truly saved you? Do you know him? Do you have the confidence that David here has, that Mary had, that Zechariah had? Truly, he has visited us and redeemed his people. Do you have that confidence? Would you today if you do not? The scripture says, believe on him. Repent of sin. Believe on Jesus and you will be saved. And when we come back together next week, we will unfold the wonder and beauty of his complete salvation. But it ought to be a terror to you if you do not know him. Repent and believe, trusting only in Jesus and his sufficient sacrifice for your salvation. Let's pray and respond.